If you would, join me in your copy of God's Word and turn to Exodus chapter 19. We're going to be beginning in Exodus chapter 19. As you know, in the occasions that I have to preach, we've been working through the book of Exodus and plan to be there this week and the the next two weeks throughout July. The book of Exodus, as you may recall, it's Exodus is primarily a book about God's name. It's a book about telling you who God is and what he does. It's about his character and his will and his purposes for the world. Exodus is a book about knowing God. And throughout this book, we have learned things like God is the creator. He's the creator of everything. God is the controller of history, and absolutely everything that is happening is ordained by his good hand. And God is a God not that you define or choose what he's like, but he's self-defining. We learn this from the burning bush, that God is self-defining. He tells you who he is. But we also learn from the burning bush that God is self-existent. Nobody starts him. Nobody causes him to live. And also you may recall and when God had Moses approach that burning bush, he didn't ask him to put a log on the fire. That's because God is self-sustaining. He doesn't need anybody to do anything for him. And God is unchanging. You know, he never changes in his character or his intensity or his purposes in the world. We've also seen that even God is immense and powerful as he is. He's also relational. And he's relational with people even like us. And he's faithful to people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who when you read about him in the Bible aren't the most impressive people that you'll ever read about. And we also learn throughout Exodus one of the new things that gets emphasized in Scripture at this point is that God is sovereign over evil. It's not that he's kind of hands-off and watching it happen and trying to figure out what to do with it, but instead he ordained the evil that is happening. You can remember back when he was speaking to Abraham and he told him that his children would be slaves for 400 years in Egypt. Now we're on the other end of that. That has happened exactly like what God has said. God is sovereign over that evil that he ordained, that slavery. He's sovereign over the evil even of Pharaoh. He had purposes in having the Pharaoh of the time hold out through absolutely every single plague all the way to the end so that God could teach everybody on the planet that he's in charge of absolutely everything. He's sovereign over evil and suffering. We see that we have seen also that God in his salvation that When he saves, he destroys and delivers. Now, salvation isn't just escaping or just being delivered, but when God saves somebody, he totally destroys their old life. Uh, Everything of their old life goes away, and they're brought into an entirely new life. More recently, we learned that God is our rock and our banner. He's the rock who protects us. He's the one who provides for us living water. He's the one who gives us guidance for living in him. He's our banner that as we live for him, we uphold that he's our strength. He's the one who's fighting for us ultimately. And we learn through what happened with Gentile Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, that God is our shepherd. He cares about everything in our lives and he comes to us to give us the care and the counsel that we need. What is focused on in the section of Scripture we're going to look at today, Exodus 19.1 to 20.17, that we learn about God is God is holy. God is holy and he makes holy. At this point, God has been faithful to carrying out his salvation plan through suffering. And Israel's suffering in Egypt didn't cause God's plan of making his name known to slow down and cease. It was all happening exactly as he had ordained. And what happened in their suffering, instead of slowing things down or messing things up, was they were fruitful and multiplied. God brought about his good purposes through the suffering that he had ordained. We see throughout Scripture, as we continue to read it, that God will be who he will be. He will do what he said to his people.
Jesus would then make him known to others. It's a book about knowing God and making him known. to exist, to know him, and to make him known by how they conducted themselves in God's world. And you'll see that as we begin into chapter 19. You'll hear the preamble to the constitution of Israel as a nation. Now please join me in your copy of God's word as we begin in Exodus chapter 19. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt... On this day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Then they set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Now Moses went up to God and Yahweh called to him from the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I lifted you up on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So now then, if you will listen, indeed listen to my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which Yahweh had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that Yahweh has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to Yahweh. Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. And Moses told the words of the people to Yahweh. Yahweh also said to Moses, Go to the people and set them apart as holy today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountains shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him. But he shall surely be stoned or surely shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and set the people apart as holy. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So it happened on the third day, when it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Let's pray as we continue in studying God's word together. Our gracious God, you are holy. You are to be feared and reverenced. And you're the only one who can make holy. Holiness is not something that is in us. It is not something that we can achieve. It is something exclusive to your being. We pray that you would teach us about your holiness and the reality that you alone are the one who can make holy. And we pray that you would do that great work among us as your word has continued to be preached here. Amen. Everything that's happening here is happening in God's timing. We see this is happening in the third month so that these people would be ready for the third day. The third day is repeated here over and over to remind you of the God of creation, 
who formed the earth in three days to then fill it in three days so that it would exist in his day of rest. And what God is doing as the God of creation who forms and fills is he's now forming this nation of Israel to fill them, to be in them. This is his creation pattern and purpose to do such a thing. And everything's going according to God's plan. Everything's happening in God's timing in the place that he has ordained, which is at Mount Sinai. Israel's following the pattern of Moses and meeting Yahweh at Mount Sinai. Moses had met God and learned about God at this mountain when we had the event of the burning bush. Back in Exodus 3.12, Yahweh said to Moses, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God at this mountain. Well, now Moses has the sign that God said that he was going to have, and they were at the mountain where the people were to serve him. And Moses could finally read the sign. The sign said, God is faithful. He brought the people out of Egypt just like he said that he would. God keeps his promises. He is who he is and will be who he will be. And he's doing all of this so that we could know him and enjoy him and serve him and worship him as he is worthy. Here at the foot of Mount Sinai, God revealed himself not only to Moses but to the people through Moses. And you can think about these people and their lives. and they, Their lives had been totally turned upside down. Uh, they needed to be taught who they were and why they existed. Everything in their life was different all of a sudden. And so Yahweh, the covenant redeemer, speaks to the house of Jacob, the sons of Israel through Moses. God addressed the house of striving he addressed the sons of God fights for you and gives them the preamble to the constitution of their, na their nation to teach them this is who you are and this is why you exist. You see their preamble beginning in chapter 19 and verse 4 and that who they are actually begins with who God is. The way that they understand themselves is by beginning with knowing who their God is and what he has done for them. In verse 4, it begins saying, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I lifted you up on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You see, the people here had no part in their salvation except seeing it happen. And this is exactly how salvation works. God destroys and God delivers. Israel's part was they were passive. Only God was active in their salvation. They didn't hop on eagle's wings at an opportunity when an eagle just happened to be flying by. But instead, God lifted them up as the only one who was willing to do this and the only one who was able to do this for them. This is how salvation works and will continue to work throughout history. In Isaiah chapter 40, 31, it speaks of a future salvation tying into the wings of eagles. And it says, Yet those who hope in Yahweh will gain new power. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Isaiah is here prophesying about a greater exodus to come in the future. It says there's going to be an exodus that's even bigger and more magnificent than the one that you read about back in the time of Moses. There's going to be one where he's going to absolutely save everything in the entire universe. The Israelites as we had discussed, didn't bring themselves to God. He brought them to himself. And this is how God's salvation works. And they weren't brought under him because they were defeated by a more powerful ruler who just wanted some more servants in his kingdom. But they were brought to him, is what we read in the text. They were brought to him and in relationship to their deliverer. 
And this is how they were to understand who they were and why they exist. They existed to know him and to make him known, which when you pick up in verse 5 and verse 6, this is made more evident. It says, So now then, if you will indeed listen to my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. They exist, the nation of Israel was to exist to make God known in relationship. The purpose of their lives was to be a declaration that salvation is by grace alone. And the emphasis is being put on God's holy name as the one who makes holy. Uh, this word is also carries the idea of God setting apart. He's setting apart a people to himself that they would have lives that are set apart to him. And you hear that this covenant here that God has with the nation of Israel has a condition. He says, if you will indeed listen to my voice and keep my covenant. You see, this people needed to be different than their former representative, Adam, who didn't listen. And he didn't keep what God told him to keep. He had lost that relationship and place and privilege that God had given him. But if they would meet this condition, it would have a particular result. He says, then you shall be my treasured possession among all the people. He says, the result would be a future grace. And this was also something that God would do because God is gracious in his being, and that's never going to change in him. But notice also that these people wouldn't be taken apart from all other people, but they would be among the other people. Because remember God's purpose that he expressed to Abraham was that they would be a blessing to the nations. They wouldn't be separated from them to be their own thing, but they would be a conduit of extending blessing to every other nation on the planet. They had a mission that was tied to fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant of God restoring God's people into God's land, being under his blessing and rest for eternity. They were to have a special purpose in serving God by teaching holiness to the nations, which they taught both negatively and positively, which as we've seen, it's mostly negatively. And it, coming up to this point, uh, they've taught the holiness of God to other people by not being holy and complaining against God and God showing that he's so holy that he'll even judge his chosen people and if he'll judge them, them, he won't spare you either. He won't show partiality to anybody because God is holy. But they also show this positively because when they do follow God, blessing extends through them to everybody else on the planet. And this result of God's holiness being extended throughout the earth and being his treasured possession, has a reason behind it. The reason is, as it is stating in God's words, for all the earth is mine. Everything is mine. Everything belongs to me and I do what I want with it. God created and owns everything. He, he does what he wants with what is his and he has a right to do whatever he wants and he always does right with what is his. And within this covenant, God expresses his missionary heart. I think you can hear that in Israel being called to be a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of people who would be known for mediating God's blessing to others. He didn't want blessing to just come to, to them, but rather through them to everybody else. They were to both have a, a royal and priestly function to rule over what God had given them, but also a, a priestly function in connecting other people to the only creator and redeemer. Israel was also to be a holy nation. 
And as they were to be set apart to the absolute lordship of Yahweh in all of their life and everything that they did from their eating and drinking to everything that they would do, they were to be instructed instructors of God's holiness. They were to be disciple-making disciples. They were to be a people who were immersed in God's name and immersing others into God's holy name. The Hebrew word nation, you might know, it's the word goy, or in plural, it's goyim. It's a word for Gentiles, it refers to a political entity, which is an interesting thing to call Hebrew people, to call them a holy Gentile. They were not called to be separatists, as you see what happened with some of the Hebrews and the Pharisees later on in history, but they were called to be unique among all the other Gentiles, in a way being Gentile themselves. But they were to be in a different category. The different category that they were to be in was holy, but the similar category they would have with everybody else is being a nation. God's plan was always to have Jew and Gentile reconciled as one man, which we see that with the fellowship that Gentile Jethro had with Hebrew Moses. Here we're seeing Israel's foreign nations program and that their political framework would be an image of the government to come that would rest upon the shoulders of the promised seed, the king, the scepter, the stone of Israel, the warrior shepherd. You see, all of this is pointing beyond itself to something that is to come in the future. We see that God's purposes here in history are intentional and that they're inseparable from the covenants that he's made throughout history, whether it be with Noah and all of creation and Abraham and all of his descendants, and now this Mosaic or Israelite covenant here in Scripture. And we see that God's covenant purposes are not just for one nation, but they're international. They're for everybody. And they're mediated here in this text through God's prophet, which is Moses. God has chosen to give his words through his prophet and to tell them how Israel can fulfill the universal climax of what was promised in the Abrahamic covenant of this family being a blessing to all families of the earth. And the purpose of this covenant, one of the things that it does is that it it establishes a relationship, a relationship that they didn't have but now could have the privilege of. And God gave them this covenant relationship to make them covenant representatives. They were not just to know God in this covenant, but to be representatives of it and to make him known. The reason that God brings people into covenant relationship is so that we can be covenant representatives of who he is. This is a truth not only in the Old Covenant, but also in the New Covenant, which we heard that read from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 specifically says, But you are a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The reason that God has brought us into the the new covenant and to be a part of this church body that we're a part of today is so that we can proclaim the excellencies of who he is and what he has done for us. Uh, We were once not a people, but now we're God's people. Uh, We once didn't know God's mercy, but now we've come to know it so that we can make it known to other people. We were brought into new covenant relationship to be new covenant representatives of the message of reconciliation. Cross-reference, 2 Corinthians 4-6. to Now, after Israel receives their preamble, in verse 8, this is how they respond. They say, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. 
which is laughable at this point. If you've been reading the book in order, you think, this is just not how these people live. Uh, immediately, they, you see, they misunderstand their relationship to Yahweh as do rather than done. The commands to do things were meant to instruct them that they need something to be done for them because they didn't do these things. God's law instruction was never assuming their ability to keep it, but rather pointing out that they don't keep it and they can't. They need somebody to save them. They couldn't make themselves the holy nation that God had called them to be. They would need that to be done for them. They need a mediator who can holy them. They need a mediator who could sanctify them, who could actually set them apart into this relationship that they, they couldn't establish with God on their own. They needed a mediator who could make them what God has called them to be, a holy nation. So Yahweh provides a, a mediator to instruct them how his salvation is going to work. You see this in verse 10 where he says to mediator Moses, go to the people and set them apart as holy. What God is teaching about his salvation here is that only God's chosen mediator can set the people apart as holy. And it's important to note here that relationships are made by persons and not instructions. Uh, Relationships are made by people establishing relationships with one another. They're not made by laws that are kept. Law instruction doesn't establish relationships. People do. And who is the person that God has sent to mediate a relationship between holy God and sinful man? Jesus. If you were to look over in Romans 8, and you should. Go over to Romans 8, verse 3. Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. These are some of the Bible verses that should be some of your favorite Bible verses here. This is to drive home the point that... the. The law can't establish a relationship with God, but only God's chosen mediator can. See this, Romans 8, verses 3 to 4. It says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see here that statement of where the Israelites said, well, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. We will do all of the law. It's like, well, the, the law in the flesh can't do that. Uh, instead, the, the law points out that your flesh can't do those things and that you need somebody to do, do that for you. It's like, well, who does that? God did it. Uh, the law was always meant to point people to their need for salvation and that God does that for you. He fulfills the righteous requirement of the law, not us. You can't come to God through law, or as we read in, back in Exodus 19, if you come up to that mountain, you get put to death. You don't touch it. If you try to come to God the wrong way, you get put to death. You can't come to a God who saves by grace alone and then tell him, well, now that you've graciously saved me, I'm going to earn this relationship by doing absolutely everything that you've ever told me to do. It doesn't work like that. And it's also offensive because he's saying, I did everything that you need. And you say, well, God, that's not enough. I'm going to do some other things. In order to correct this wrong thinking, what Yahweh says back in Exodus 19.12 he says, beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Here we're taught in Exodus again, you can't approach God however you want and live. 
Israel needed to learn what Moses learned when he came up to the burning bush. You have to take your sandals off. God is powerful, and in his holiness, he's not to be treated lightly. You can't come to him however you want. You have to approach him how he wants you to approach him. And God is teaching Israel the same lesson that he taught Moses in exactly the same place at Mount Sinai. The people were meant to learn a fearful respect of how they approach God and to recognize they can't bring themselves near to him. They would need somebody else who could bring them near. And they would need to trust in him, whoever he was. All of this is teaching us that you must listen to God's word or you will surely die. You, you have to be made holy by somebody who does that for you. You can't just come to holy God however you want, however you decide. You have to come through Jesus and Jesus alone who is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. He has to do for you what you can't do for yourself. You need Jesus to make you holy and bring you to God. Picking up back in Exodus 19, if you want to turn back there, we're going to pick up in verse 18. Exodus 19, 18. This is a text about meeting the God who comes down. Exodus 19, 18. Now, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because Yahweh descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder, and Yahweh came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And Yahweh called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, Go down, warn the people, lest they break through to Yahweh to see, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to Yahweh set themselves apart as holy, lest Yahweh break out against them. And Moses said to Yahweh, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai. For you warned us, saying, set bounds about the mountain and set it apart as holy. Then Yahweh said to him, go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to Yahweh, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. The language here in this text reminds us of a... Another time when Yahweh came down to the top of something, but it was a time of judgment at the Tower of Babel. Yahweh came down to this top that man had built up trying to get to God, but it also reminds us of another time when God came down to this man named Jacob to recreate him and rename him as Israel while he laid his top on the top of a rock. And Jacob was recreated into being Israel, which means God fights for you. And here we see God doing something of that same work, even in calling Moses to the top of Mount Sinai, which wasn't being consumed. So you see the threats of judgment all around this place, but the people aren't being consumed at the moment. You see that there's this expression of the seriousness of judgment that's deserved, but that grace and relationship can be had with this holy God. But there's also a contrast between Babel and Mount Sinai. You remember when Yahweh came down to Babel, Babel came down. But when Yahweh comes down to Moses, Moses goes up. You see that when God brings about his salvation, some go down and some go up. Some are destroyed and others are delivered. 
But what makes all the difference is the priest mediator who went down to instruct people from this mount of instruction to teach them, you must be holy as God is holy or die. You must come to God the way that he instructs you to come to him or die. You can't approach him as you are and you can't bring yourself to him. You need to be brought to him by somebody who can make you what you need to be. The people don't have the ability to come up and if they try, they'll die. You see here, Mount Sinai was a bigger obstacle in coming to the Lord than even Egypt was. God must not only call them, but also make them what he has called them to be. They must be made holy somehow because they can't make themselves holy. But we know the tension of this, as Hebrews 12, 14 says, without holiness, no one can see the Lord. So the teaching moment in history here is clear. God is holy, and you are not, and you cannot do what God requires. You need a person who can make you what you're supposed to be and be everything that you need. You need a salvation by something being done for you, not done by you. Concerning God's holiness, it sets him at a respectful distance, giving his absolute otherness and uniqueness. But even in all of this, it, it doesn't cancel out his withness or his nearness. It is true that God has no peer, that he is the creator and everything else is the creation. But in covenant love, he is pleased to bring his creation back to himself. I think you can see this reality in 1924. It says, Then Yahweh said to him, Go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to Yahweh, lest he break out against them. You see, the priest mediator had to go down, but he would also come up again and bring somebody else with him. This was teaching people this is how salvation works. Somebody comes down to you to bring you up. And they had to come through God's mediator and on God's terms or die. They had to be protected from God. They needed to be saved from his wrath and his judgment. They weren't to start making their way up like the Tower of Babel did, according to their own ideas. But they were to have somebody who would come down to them and transform them to be what they needed to be, just like happened with their forefather Jacob, and then be brought back up with him. It's important to notice here how this relationship with God is something that came before he gave his law to them. Because Salvation isn't keep the law in order to get the relationship with God, but it's rather because you have this relationship with God, you want to keep his law instruction because you want to honor him and to enjoy him and live life according to his good word because you believe that he's good. The law doesn't make anybody holy. You know, only God can make holy only Jesus can make you holy. Now, thankfully, we've never had to experience anything like Mount Sinai and looking at something that, you know, like a mountain. You think these mountains are the most stable thing in all of creation. And to hear, you know, the sounds of judgment trumpets sounding and to see this thing shake and think, if this thing falls apart, anything could fall apart. But... We approach God through a better covenant and through a better mediator, which speaks a better word. If you turn over to Hebrews 12, 18 with me, I want you to see that in your copy of God's word, Hebrews 12, 18. Listen in this text for 
the better covenant, a better mediator, and a better word. Hebrews 12, 18. For you have not come up to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which was such that those who heard begged that no further word would be spoken to them. For they could not bear what was being commanded. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was what appeared that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the festival gathering and assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. We are under a better covenant. You know, as Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 3, he says, we're not under the ministry of death, but rather the ministry of the Spirit. We're not under a ministry of condemnation like in the old covenant, but a ministry of righteousness in the new covenant. And we have a better mediator Jesus is the Holy One that Moses could never be. Jesus can actually take all of our sins upon Himself and set us apart as holy in God because He is our holiness. He is our righteousness. He is everything that we need. And He can bring us to God. And we have a better word. Instead of the word of Mount Sinai condemnation, we have Mount Zion justification declared. Instead of the threat of death, we have the promise of life. Instead of Abel's blood, which cried out for judgment, we have Jesus' blood, which cries out for forgiveness. Instead of the declaration that you must be judged for your sin, we now have the declaration that you must be loved because of Jesus' righteousness given to you. Jesus' forgiveness is, I think, illustrated in a powerful way in the book of Philemon, where Paul is talking about one man for giving another, and he says, for perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you? both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would accept me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. This is how forgiveness works. God forgives people who have committed the most outlandish sins against him to have them back and not to have them back merely as a slave, but as a beloved brother. And then to create a community of forgiveners, people who have been forgiven and extend a forgiveness that is outlandish and as gracious as God's forgiveness. This is a forgiveness to know and to make known because we exist to know God and to make Him known. We exist to love God and to love our neighbor by making God known through how we live our lives, which begins to bring us to discussing the 10 words in chapter 20 of Exodus. If you want to turn with me back over there to Exodus chapter 20, the 10 words or the 10 commandments as they're more commonly called. As we come here, perhaps it's important to consider the difference between covenant and law. What's the difference between Mosaic covenant and Mosaic law? Well, a covenant, as we've talked about, it, it creates a new relationship. But what a law does is it, it instructs the conduct within that relationship. So a covenant creates a new relationship or it maintains it or adjusts an existing relationship, and the law instructs the conduct within that relationship. 
Israel's already been brought into a covenant relationship with God. But within that relationship, they need to know, well, how do we show God's character through our conduct? Well, that's what the law is for. And it has a purpose in teaching the nations what the character of their God is like. We already read about that in what I termed their preamble in chapter 19. That's perhaps stated more clearly in Deuteronomy 4 where it reads, You shall keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is Yahweh our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as the whole law which I am setting before you today? The ten words here, I get that term from Exodus 34, 28, where scripture says, So he was there with Yahweh forty days and forty nights, and he did not eat bread or drink water. He wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And you probably have a little footnote in your Bible. It'll say literally words. There are ten words. Well, why is it significant that they're called words instead of commandments? And they're to be, they are commandments to be sure, and it's not wrong to call them that. But the use of the word words here, it, it emphasizes that God is relational. He's not just sending down some commandments to you, but he's with you and he's speaking to you about the most important words in life, the most important matters and things that could ever be considered. Ten words rather than ten commandments heightens the connection of God's personal, relational, guiding communication. And you'll notice when you look through here that these words were specifically addressed to the men of Israel. I get that from verse 17 because it says not to covet your neighbor's wife. And I know that wives don't have wives, despite whatever you read on your news feed. This is communicating the, the regaining of what was lost in Eden. You know, God's leadership structure in creation. And God is revealing himself through his word because he wants to be known and he wants to be enjoyed. Uh, he wants his loving character to be made known through his word and through his people who enjoy living by his word. You see, these commandments here are more about revelation than restriction. The law isn't a set of a bunch of restrictive rules on life, but they're revelatory instruction, which are teaching that God is holy Man is sinful and needs a God-man mediator. These are words given for discipleship and evangelism. These are words for how to love God and love others. These are words also for knowing God and making Him known. So as we begin to start working through the ten words or ten commandments, what we're going to focus on is what they reveal about God and the implications that it had for Israel as a nation specifically, and how the instruction that we get about God's character connects even into our own lives. Let's start by looking at the first commandment in chapter 20. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You see, this, these commandments begin with reminding them of who God is. You know, I saved you into this relationship. I brought you into this so that you could have this benefit. And you're not to have anything else that you think is like me in your life. This is revealing that God is a jealous God. He's not going to share his salvation glory with anybody else. No other gods are ever to be brought before his presence. God has given himself to a people in covenant relationship, and they're never to give themselves to anything else to be a rescuer to him, 
to them besides him. He's the only thing that they're ever to go to to seek rescue and instruction in life. For Israel, this would reinforce with them there's only one God. There's not a whole bunch of gods like you learned in Egypt. There's only one God. There's only one Redeemer. There's not a bunch of different Redeemers. You're not to bring worldly ideas, worldly counsel, or practices to the same level as what you're getting from God. He is to be exclusive in your life. We go on to commandment 2 and verse 4, which reads, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. God alone chooses how he would like to reveal himself. And the implication that this has for Israel is that they don't get to choose how God is to be revealed or how to teach other people about him. They were not to make any artistic representations of God which they thought would show some respect to him or honor him or to help other people understand him or aid their worship in some way. Because what happens when they would create those things is that it would confuse the distinction between, well, who's the creator and who's the creation here? This would be one of the commandments with which Israel would struggle with the most. And when you read through the commandments, the ones that have the most words and detail are the ones that Israel and we tend to struggle with the most. You know, immediately after this, how Israel ends up breaking this commandment right away with the golden calf. And it's important to understand about that event that they, they weren't worshiping the golden calf. They didn't think that this calf that they built uh, had actually saved them, but they thought, this is the way to honor God. When you want to honor a God who does something for you, you build some golden thing. And so they were trying to honor him, and they were trying to help other people to worship. And they said, this thing's going to help us worship, and it's going to honor God and show some respect to him for what he's done for us. We would be remiss to think that this was a major struggle just for Israel and not us today. We might not make images out of metal and stone or wood, but we have images in other places. They're usually on screens is where we like to make them. Because people want to have a visual representation of Jesus on a screen because they think it'll aid their worship. But it's not Jesus that you're worshiping. It's man's creation of a Jesus made in his own image and likewise confuses who is the creator and who is the creation. The point of this commandment boiled down into a few words is worship the right God the right way. Worship the right God the right way. If you want to know what God looks like so that you can worship him more deeply, then where do you find the image of God? Jesus. Jesus is the image of God. And how has he been revealed to us? Through the Bible alone. We see him in the pages of Scripture which he has so graciously given to us so that we could know him. And he's jealous for us to have a right relationship with him, to have a right representation of him that leads to right worship of him because he's jealous to maintain the integrity of that relationship with his people. Wrong representation of Jesus always leads to wrong worship. Case in point is the TV series, The Chosen. Some movie makers created a golden calf Jesus in their own image, and after creating a wrong representation of Jesus, they go on to promote things like LGBT stuff. You know, it's like, well, why is there a pride flag on your set? And why do you all of a sudden want to start promoting these things? Well, they had already started off on the wrong foot because they made a Jesus in their own image. The iniquity of 
wrong worship is something that goes on for generations to generations. It's a fearful iniquity to commit because if it visits your home, it might visit the home also of your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. It only takes one traitor to endanger a whole army. Wrong worship is dangerous not only for you, but generations beyond you. Because if you worship wrong, then your children will think, well, this is the right way to do it because this is what my parents did and my grandparents did. But God also, within this statement, he says that he shows his loving kindness to thousands. You know, his, his last word isn't, your sins are going to pass on forever to other generations. But the last word is on his loving kindness to thousands, to those who love him and keep his commandments. And this is the God that we want to make known. We want to make the true God known. We want to give a right representation of this God so that there will be generations of those who worship him rightly, uh, who fear him and have a confident trust in him. In verse 7, we come to commandment 3. The word of God reads, You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. God here reveals his name, which is what we've talked about. His name is who he is. It's his character and his will. And his character and will are to be treated as holy and never to be treated lightly. He's to be set apart as holy in our lives and never set apart from any part of our lives. He's to always be honored in everything we do and never ignored or neglected or dismissed. This commandment deals not only with how somebody speaks, but primarily with how somebody lives out every other commandment here. This gets played out later in Scripture with the idea of failing to keep an oath. Failing to keep an oath takes God's name in vain because it's out of step with his word-keeping character. We take his name in vain when we live in unfaithfulness because our God isn't a God of unfaithfulness. He's a God of faithfulness. So our yes should always mean yes and our no should always mean no. As we read here for the person who does treat God's character and will lightly, though they may claim to know him, what their life is actually saying is he doesn't exist. And because he doesn't exist, I don't have to keep my word, and it's not that important. For that person, they will not go unpunished for failing to reverence the character and will of God. He will demonstrate that he is holy by judging their unholiness. Commandment number four begins in verse eight. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of Yahweh your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female slave, or your cattle or your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The Sabbath day was put on Israel's calendar as a reminder that they are in covenant with the God of creation. And it reminded and revealed to them that God is both creator and sanctifier. He's the only one who can make anything holy because he's the only one who is holy. And this particular commandment was the sign of the Mosaic covenant. You see this in Exodus 31, 13. It's Exodus 31, 13. It says, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am Yahweh who makes you holy." This Sabbath commandment is only ever given to the nation of Israel 
in Scripture during the temporary administration of the Mosaic Covenant. It's never given to any other nation or people, but it was given to them in particular as a teaching tool to teach them this, I am Yahweh who makes you holy. I'm the only one that can do that for you. The Sabbath was a reminder to Israel also that things in creation aren't as they ought to be. They're not set apart to God. We don't see everything in subjection to Him right now. Everything in creation needs to be made holy from land to man. And only God can do this because He's the creator and the only sanctifier. The creator needs to make a new creation out of the old creation. This is not something that we can do, but only he can do. It was also a reminder to them that they hadn't entered into God's rest. But it was also a reminder that his plan was still that all creation would enter his rest. There's those words of hope where he says, I make you holy. This day looked forward in the hope of resting in God's finished work. Ultimately, the Sabbath day pointed to their need for Jesus to come and to sanctify them, to bring them into God's rest, which Christ has fulfilled in his finished work on the cross, taking the sign of the Sabbath day off the calendar, but keeping the time of Sabbath rest open for the people of God. You see that sort of distinction made in Hebrews chapter 4. I'll read to you verses 9 and 10. This is Hebrews 4, 9 and 10. It says, So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. And so we see the ancient Sabbath day from the obsolete Mosaic covenant is still instructive for how we understand Sabbath rest today. We're still instructed that God is creator and the only one who can sanctify you. It points out that we are unholy, but only a holy God can make you holy. It's a reminder that sinful man is outside of God's rest, and he can't work himself into God's rest. He needs to be brought into it. We need to be brought in specifically through Jesus's finished work, which brings us to rest from working to earn it somehow, to resting in his work alone. As I had already mentioned, Israel had the greatest difficulty with the the two commandments that had the most explanation, which were not making idols, and this one, remembering the Sabbath. For us, this is a reminder, us who are in the beloved, the church, to Guard ourselves from idols which keep us from resting in Christ alone. He alone is the one who speaks and instructs us on who he is and how we're to live in him. And that we're to live in God's rest. Not just as something that's coming and that's in the future, but it's something that we experience and we live in now when we find our satisfaction only in him. And we're not looking to other people to praise us or to give us thanks or to recognize us in order to feel satisfied in our religious life. Uh, It's enough to know that God has spoken, that by Christ he's brought us into his rest, and there's nothing that we have to do to earn or maintain or sustain that relationship that it's all of grace. And that's what breaks seeking to please man or to get recognition from man. It also breaks that struggle with sin that we have when we think, well, how do I get this sin out of my life? And you just think about it all the time, but what you end up doing is thinking about that sin and trying to serve it out of your life. But what you're doing is serving the sin rather than Christ and thinking about how, you know what? Because all of my sins have been forgiven, I could commit that sin and it wouldn't change my justified status with God. But because he's graciously given me that justified status with him, I don't want to do it. I don't want to offend him. I have the freedom to live 
in him and to enjoy him and the, the privilege to follow his instruction because he's at, he's at work in me. Well, we were only able to get through four of the Ten Commandments, so I have to pick up on the, the fifth, Lord willing, next week. I know that perhaps going through some of this stuff raises some, some questions in your mind, which I could address in future messages if you ask them. But if you do not ask them, I do not know that you want me to answer them. So, as we come to a close here, let's pray as the music team comes forward. Our gracious Lord, we thank you that you have spoken and ask that you forgive us for taking your word lightly, not heeding it, not being devoted to it, not seeing it as the important thing that it is, the high privilege that it is that we could come and hear from you and that you would love us and that you would guide us. We pray that you would do that here in this room to give us needed correction, needed comfort to do the work which only your wisdom can do and accomplish, and that you would help us to be a faithful part of that work. Amen. ...of the epistle of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy... To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, might, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.